we need our best minds, our best theorists, our best planners on this question. Mm -hmm. Those people are not looking at this question right now. Instead, we have incompetent people. We have policy wonks who think through a grid of American geostrategic priorities who are not on the ground seeing the deaths of Israeli citizens and Israeli children, Palestinian citizens and Palestinian children. You are listening to Fruitless, a podcast hosted by me, Josiah Sutton. This is episode 20, Israel-Palestine, featuring Keanu Haidari, where we discuss the historical context for Israel's war in Gaza. So I will formally say, welcome everybody to another exciting episode of Fruitless. I am I am joined uh, today by Keanu Heydari, repeat repeat guest here. Had, had him on a year and a half ago to talk about um, you know queer theology and stuff, and you are uh, you are back to talk about Israel Palestine. Thank you so much for having me back on the on the podcast, Josiah. It means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I really really appreciate your uh, your thoughts, especially on. Uh, matters of theology and geopolitics so um (laughs) (laughs) real quick for somebody who hadn't listened to that episode do you want to give a little introduction of yourself sure sure, of course absolutely uh my name is uh keanu hidari i am at the present moment a sixth year phd candidate at the university of michigan in the department of history uh my my dissertation looks at uh the uh, the group of Iranian students who were in Paris from 1945 or so to just around the time of the revolution in Iran in 1979. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have interests scattered all over the place in, <clears throat> in, in theology, in global geopolitics, the enterprise of global capitalism. And so my, my interests are all over the place. And so I think, uh, in terms of credentialing, I do European history and colonialism and imperialism. L- last year, um, I taught with uh, Professor Juan Cole at the University of Michigan, uh, mm-hmm. his course on the history of the modern Middle East, okay. which exposed me to uh, a lot of secondary and primary sources on the question of Israel-Palestine. Um, and so a lot of that stuff is fresh in my mind. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, yeah, that's about that's about where I am at right now. Fantastic. Well, um, you know, I, I assume most people know, but but you know why this subject is coming up. Of course, is that at the beginning of October on October seventh, you know, H- Hamas uh, did a a unprecedentedly unprecedented large attack um, on Israel that then led to uh, Israel retaliating on Gaza. And uh, declaring war on Hamas and uh, indiscriminately bombing Gaza, um, beginning land invasions, etc. Over the la- course of the last month or so, um, I believe the casualty count at this point has reached over ten thousand. According to the figures of uh, 
the the Gaza Health Administration. It's over ten thousand now. And um, of course, this is a you know accompanied with as we're seeing global protests demanding a ceasefire. Um, you probably, if you're living in the U.S., have probably seen some of these protests locally. Um, so I, I felt that would be, uh, you know, th- this would be a good subject to bring Keanu on to discuss. So wh- why don't you give, um, if, if somebody knows nothing about Israel, Palestine, they just know, you know, what they kind of see in headlines occasionally, what's kind of the historical context of what's taking place right now? I think it's important to preface this conversation with, uh, with a, a couple clarifications. Mm-hmm. One would be that when people say, the issue is complicated. Mm-hmm. It's not actually complicated, right? There's a lot of there's a lot of um, historical detail. There's a lot of idiosyncrasies, a lot of facts that you have to, you know, navigate your way through. But James Gelvin, a professor at UCLA, has the book on this topic, and mm-hmm. the book is called "The Israel Palestine Conflict: A History." James L. Gelvin. Um, mm-hmm. And the book is right now in its fourth edition. I anticipate it will be in its fifth edition sometime soon. And most of my my knowledge of this issue comes from from reading Gelvin's work, from reading Noam Chomsky and Ion Pape, Norman Finkelstein, uh, Mohammed Omer in his book Shellshocked, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and then most probably uh, most interesting are Ion Pape's book, The Biggest Prison on Earth. And a historian who I actually met at the University of Michigan, uh, Rashid Falidi, The Hundred Years' War on yeah. Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism oh, and Resistance, 1917. Fascinating, fascinating meeting to meeting him. I would, I'd love to hear about that. That's, um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, he, he's an, he's a brilliant guy. And, and, and my, my knowledge of, of the, of the issues comes primarily from academic sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what that means is I'm not too interested. Well, I, I'm cert- I, I actually am interested in how media discursively presents this conflict, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but my 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 primary interest is is in a kind of scholarly understanding of the issue. That's the first thing to clarify that we have to make a distinction between popular, very emotional, very uh, aggressive conflict between two sides in a debate, right? Mm-hmm. That that opposed to what is the history of this conflict? How do we understand how we got to the present moment, right? And I think that's hard for a lot of people to to distinguish between the heightened emotions of the present moment and the kind of arguably boring history of uh, uh, of this issue. So once once we once we get to the point where we're we're willing to discuss the history, I think that things will fall into place pretty quickly, if that makes sense. That's uh, Yeah, I mean, that's exactly why I, I, I wanted you on here specifically is because I wanted that angle because I, I you know, I, I have another episode. I, I just released a Fruitless on the Patreon and, you know, I can have, you know, ha- we, we, we were able to just easily riff about the, the media coverage of this and the Democratic, you know, response from members of the Democratic Party, etc. But I think the, the angle that I, I really want to get into is a more like, historical and yes almost you know that's going to be a little cold and i know that was something that people you know got mad about especially right after the attacks when people were trying to provide historical context for the the october 7th attack 
it's you know automatically that coldness that's kind of just necessary with a historical discussion led to a lot of anger from people that 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 was you know you're discounting the the lives or whatever because we're talking about the historical context however i i'm hoping a month now passing the um people are be more willing to to kind of talk about this on a historical level so um Mm. I guess I guess let's let's get into some of that historical context here. So, what do you think would be the um, you know best kind of short description you can give of kind of uh, you know how we got to where we're at with with Israel and you know both its relationship with Palestine, you know specifically Gaza and the West Bank, and then also its neighboring states, which are you know relevant here. A lot of historians want to start the conversation in 1948 with the uh, Arab-Israeli War. My my position is that we really need to start in the wake of of World War One and the Balfour Declaration, right? So what happens is, uh, you know, before I go into the history, I want to read one quote to you, which I think, which I think, emphasizes mm-hmm. the stakes of this conversation. It's from it's from Gelvin's uh, Israel Palestine conflict book. He says, while it is the role of the true believer to believe, it is the role of the historian to treat the self-aggrandizing claim of any and all nationalist movements with skepticism. The Mm. same goes for the claims of their opponents. Mm -hmm. Once we understand the larger trajectory of the history of nationalism, the first inflection point would be the 17th century peace of Westphalia in Europe which creates the groundwork for the contemporary understanding of what the nation state is. But people aren't really able to enact practically the disciplinary apparatuses of the nation state until the 1800s, when the nation state begins to become a pragmatic on the ground reality. So one of the important tasks of history is to do what Bertolt Breck refers to as alienation. We have to alienate ourselves from the narrative that's ambient around us, right? We got to say what actually happened historically. So let's let's rewind the clock before the 20th century and and look at how Zionism, the a kind of nationalist movement, was able to through a a, a word in Hebrew, the plural is aliyot and the singular is aliyah means basically waves of migration of Jewish people, of, of Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jews uh, from Europe and elsewhere to the land of Palestine. And there are four, five, sometimes six waves, depending on who you ask, right? Waves of Jewish migration into Palestine. Mm-hmm. A lot of this stuff begins in the 1800s, right? Let's, let, let's do some demographics right now. So we have an idea of what we're talking about, right? We're talking about, first of all, a place that is the size of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Right. We're talking yeah. about a we're talking about a place that that is uh, in in the global scheme of things. And this is going to sound pretty offensive to some people who are really emotionally invested in the issue. It's not that important, comparatively speaking, right? Mm-hmm. One of one of the the tragic features of history is that some events reach what Hegel, the philosopher, called world historical importance. Mm-hmm. But 
in reality, nothing is world historically important. Everything is just a, a contingent feature of its time. So we think about the Rwandan genocide. We think about the, the genocide uh, in the 90s in Eastern Europe. We think about what's going on in Darfur. We think about what's going on in Sudan. Uh, all of this stuff is horrific and tragic, but it receives virtually no attention or consideration in the media. But Israel-Palestine receives a disproportionate amount of in, uh, attention in the media. And I think there's a good reason why that is. And we'll, we can talk about that later. But mm-hmm. uh, to, to circle back to your initial question, what's the history? What's going on? So let's give some demographic numbers about uh, from 2020. Israel, the country Israel, has about 9 million people. Palestine, mm-hmm. we're talking about, and for, for your listeners, it would probably be good to, uh, to pull up a map of Israel-Palestine to have a sense of what we're talking about here. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, two distinct areas of land that have been increasingly uh, shrunk by virtue of Zionist settler colonialism in in the region, there are 5 million Palestinians, according to a 2020 uh, survey. So Mm -hmm. in a a much bigger strip of land, there are 9 million people. In two distinct strips of tiny land, there are 5 million people. Mm -hmm. Scholars estimate that globally, there are 13 million Palestinians, uh, including Indigenous, indigenously in Palestine and in the diaspora globally. So let's think about this. From 1948 forward, there have been about 150,000 people who have been injured or have been killed in conflicts relating to uh, uh, the Israel-Palestine issue, not including what has just occurred Jesus. since October. 150,000 people sounds like a lot, right? Mm-hmm. But if we if we pull up if we pull up uh, Galvin's text, he will he will show us how there there honestly is a uh, it's disproportionate attention right disproportionate attention because he says this there were five hundred thousand to one million dead and one million to two million injured in the war between Iran and Iraq which lasted from 1980 to 1988. More recently, a combined total of 631,000 Syrians and Yemenis who died between 2011 and 2020 from civil war and civil war-induced famine and disease. In the Bosnian War, 250,000 people dead. The genocide in Rwanda, the, the upper numbers are 850,000 dead. When's the last time you've heard someone talk about the Rwandan genocide, right? Mm-hmm. Not not recently. So, no. No. so there's a there's a there's a strategic cultural importance to the conflict in Israel Palestine that we have to acknowledge up front. We're talking about hundred fifty thousand plus casualties, right? And by no means am I trying to minimize this intense and immense suffering of people on both Israel and and the Palestinian sides. I'm just trying to situate this in a kind of global context right 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 that that we need to understand that this issue is not exceptional that it's a historical happening like any other event in world history yeah um so galvin will tell us 
that the Israel-Palestine dispute has gone on for so long, for such a long time. It's been the subject of such a heated debate that we're going to lose sight of what is the fundamental issue involved in this discussion. Mm -hmm. And he argues, bottom line, cut and dry, the problem is a real estate question. Mm -hmm. Jewish immigrants and their descendants who are inspired by a kind of nationalist ideology called Zionism, which has its provenance in the 19th century, so in the 1800s, that, along with Palestinian Arab inhabitants, among whom Zionists settled, both of them claim an exclusive right to inhabit and control some or all of the Palestinian territory. That's the fundamental debate. And when we lose sight of that, that this is a question of real estate, we we ultimately will fall prey to nationalist or ethno-nationalist or ethno-nationalist religious ideology that tries to create some kind of fictional narrative to justify the right to claim the land. Yeah. So, so what's next? Obviously, people are going to listen to this and say, Wait a minute. You're saying all of this stuff started in the 1800s. What about the claim of ancient Jewish people? Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, Galvin will tell us that, you know, it's not that Zionists are fabricating their narrative out of, you know, out of or from whole cloth, right? Nationalist movements, whether it's Russian nationalism or French nationalism, American nationalism, it never completely pulls shit out of someone's ass, you know? Right, um, yeah. The, the, the land of Palestine was indeed referred to in Jewish texts and rituals for centuries. And in the Passover seders, uh, Jewish people uh, ritually proclaim next year in Jerusalem. But mm -hmm. what is... What is distinct about this, right? What the Zionists did, just like any other nationalist movement before and since has done, is that they read their history selectively. Right. The same thing is true. The, the same thing is true for Palestinian nationalism, right? They read mm -hmm. their history selectively and they draw conclusions from it that wouldn't have been intelligible. To ancient Jewish people or ancient Arabs in the, let's say, the, the ninth century, right? That what is unique about this situation is that it is a modern crisis. And that's where we lose people in this conversation. We lose a ton of people when we argue along with scholars of nationalism, of, of you know, historians in general, who observe that the national phenomenon is only made possible after the Industrial Revolution, mm -hmm. when we were able to take the ideas from the Peace of Westphalia in the 17th century and apply them in a kind of disciplinary way in the, in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. So bottom line, cut and dry, the question is, is this an ancient, eternal, perennial conflict between Muslims and Jews? Or is it something more recent? And the answer among any credible historian worth his or her salt is that this is a thoroughly modern problem. So moving into then 1948 and the, the f formation of this, this nation state now, you know, in line of this, this 19th century ideology that, you know, 
you know, you, know, you, you, you can see, um, you know, I've done previous episodes of the show on like 1848 and the revolutions of that. Sure. So like, yeah, you know, that that's the period we're kind of talking about when Zionism is, is cooking up and it, it, it comes into finally forming an official state in the forties, um, and displacing the Palestinian population during that time. Do you, do you want to say a little bit about that process and kind of where things go from there? Absolutely. The one, the one thing I want to clarify is that Zionism is not a monolith. Zionism right, is right. a very variegated, diverse intellectual movement. Like, like with, a lot of nationalisms, that's kind of, kind of something we, we've returned, I've returned to on the show a few times with um, another historian friend of mine, uh, Chris Barker, but um, specifically that like, you know, it, up until recently is that the nationalism is completely seen as this right wing thing, you know, for much of the 19th century, it was considered, you know, it was, it could be left or right wing. It, it really, you know, there's a lot of different variations of exactly how nationalism plays out. So one of the one of the key distinctions I want to kind of highlight is the distinction between political Zionism and practical Zionism. Mm. So political Zionism is the is the effort inspired by, you know, granddaddies of the the Zionist movement like Theodore Herzl, which which said we have to convince diplomatically enough countries to support our cause, right? Mm-hmm. Practical Zionism is a kind of revisionist Zionism, and its its father was a a, a man called Yabotinsky. Mm-hmm. He was born in Odessa in the late nineteenth century, and he was trained as a journalist. Right, something that he has in common with Theodore Herzl. He experienced devastating pogroms in Europe, but what was different between Theodore Herzl, the kind of you know. Uh, Let's approach this through political diplomatic means. What was different about Yabotinsky? Mm-hmm. He, in 1931, and his followers organized the underground militia of revisionist Zionists. And they were uh, cooperating with a group called the Stern Gang. And they perpetuated some of the most horrific atrocities in modern Palestine including a campaign of reprisal bombings in 1937 in Arab markets. Uh, 80 to 100 people were murdered, and the the revisionist Zionist also perpetrated a massacre, 250 uh, uh, civilians in the village of Deir Yassin in 1948. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I think is important to state is that Yabotinsky himself said the program of the revisionist is not complicated. Mm -hmm. He said, the aim of Zionism is a Jewish state, hence the commandment of the hour, a new political campaign and the militarization of Jewish youth in Israel and the Jewish diaspora. And and so this, this distinguishes between kind of the, the older Zionism, which was more concerned with Jews, like, you know, returning quotes, you know, to the, to the homeland versus, a more militaristic, we are going to form a state around an ethnic identity. That that's kind of exactly right. Okay. It's exactly right. That makes sense. A lot of, a lot of the conflict arises in what people call the fourth Aliyah, the fourth wave of 80,000 people or so coming to Palestine. Right. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that multiple authors will say that at 
this moment, the ideological roots of the current Israeli political apparatus represented by the Likud party mm-hmm. uh, come from revisionist Zionism, right? Yabotinsky, this kind of murderous practical Zionism is the intellectual heir, uh, the intellectual uh, uh, predecessor of the contemporary Likud party. One of the things that I want to run by you mm-hmm. that I think will be probable, and I, I don't want to overstate my case, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it might be pretty transformative to hear what I'm about to say. Okay. Is that Yabotinsky in 1923 wrote an essay. And again, this is 1923. Mm-hmm. He wrote an essay called The Iron Wall. Oh, wow. Subtitled, subtitled We and the Arabs. Mm-hmm. What was the gist of this essay? Well, he said that the indigenous population of Palestine would never accept a Jewish majority state in Palestine. So, quote, there can be no voluntary agreement between us and the Palestine Arabs. Quote, Zionist colonization must either stop or else proceed regardless of the native population, which means that it can proceed and develop only under the protection of a power that is independent of the native population behind an iron wall, which the native population cannot breach. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, I, that's 1923, dude. That's 1923. No, I mean, I mean, literally a hundred years ago, like an exact hundred years ago. And it is, that is a, yeah. Formulating exactly the kind of situation that, uh, you know, is Israelis and Palestinians are living with results of. Yeah. Absolutely. So what is the lesson to be gleaned from this segment, from the 19th century to the 1920s? It's mm-hmm. that the, the plan for the ethnic cleansing of Palestine had been articulated as early as the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when we, when we look at this question historically, we have to acknowledge a couple things. Number one, Zionism is diverse. There are dove-like Zionists who do not desire the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. But the situation that's going on right now is people who are inspired by Yabotinsky and the revisionist school of Zionism. So, okay, let's 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 refocus for for one for a couple of minutes. I'll just very quickly run through a couple flashpoints and then we can get to a discussion. That'd right? be perfect. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. So 1917 is the Balfour Declaration, right? It had something like a community center in mind, right? There weren't that many Jewish people in Palestine in 1917. Nobody could have imagined an Israeli state. Mm-hmm. The, the declaration uses the word home rather than state. Mm-hmm. So there's the British mandate of Palestine. And after the, after the war, uh, you have Transjordan being spun off as the Hashemite kingdom. And Palestine becomes a British mandate. So what does the League of Nations say? You need to prepare Palestinians for statehood. Mm-hmm. But British policy was to pursue Jewish settlement. Mm. So what happened was the British incorporated the Balfour Declaration into the declaration that created the mandate, which is not what happened with the French in Syria or the British in Iraq. So okay. after this, there's a growth in the Palestinian population in huge numbers. Lots of suffering in the 1930s, lots of fragmented estates, 
then obviously we have Hitler and the Holocaust and the 1930s and 40s. There is a revolt, an Arab revolt from 1936 to 1939, where Palestinians were protesting continued Jewish immigration and displacement in Palestine. There is a revolt by Izzaldin al-Qassam, who led a revolt and he was killed. 10,000 armed peasants rose up and refused to pay their taxes. Uh, And this provoked a very important event in 1939 called the Peel Commission, which recommended the partition of the land. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the Palestinians, time and time again, not in favor of partition. The revolt ended when the British sent in 20,000 troops and the, the, what we today call the Israeli Defense Force, originally called the Haganah, which was the Jewish settler paramilitary force. Mm-hmm. Kind of terrifying to think about, but the, the settler paramilitary force put down the Palestinian revolt. At this time, the, uh, 1939, the economies of, of, of the Jewish state and Palestine are separated, right? Mm-hmm. 39, there's a white paper released that recommends against partition that, that suggests a Palestinian majority should be in charge within 10 years, argues for a Palestinian state, argues for the limitation of Jewish immigration to 15,000 people, and really upset the Zionists, right? Mm-hmm. The question is what happened after the white paper of 43? Well, we have the partition of Palestine that was accomplished by the British and the United Nations that ignored the findings of the 1939 white paper, the United Nations Resolution 181 uh, that called for the partition of Palestine into Arab and Jewish states with the city of Jerusalem as a corpus separatum, separate entity to be governed by a special international regime. So the UN General Assembly votes to partition Palestine, and the British announce a withdrawal in 1948, and a civil war breaks out. Since 48, there has been nothing but discord, conflict, and fighting between Lebanon, Syria, Israel, all its neighbors. There have been, I'm, I'm, I think it's important to highlight how it began, I, I don't think your listeners would be super interested in a carefully detailed lecture or exposition of all the conflicts that happened throughout the course of the 20th century. Right, but right. Suffice it to say, suffice it to say that there have been flashpoints, inflection points in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s that that reflect ongoing tensions as a result of the process of Zionist settlers coming into Palestinian land, displacing economies, displacing kinship structures, uh, practicing forms of what Patrick Wolf calls uh, uh, genocidal settler colonialism. And I think simply appealing to the history of what happened creates a set of ethical commitments. Yeah. And one of those ethical commitments is simply telling the truth. And I think one of those truth claims is that Zionism is not unique, is not special. It is simply an instantiation of a form of aggressive settler colonial nationalism. It's not special, right? So that's the main the main thing I want your listeners to to get from this from this brief historical narration is that 
Zionism is not special. It's just like any other kind of nationalism. It has its own mythology. It has its own liturgies, its own symbology, its own internal justification. Um, I'm sure you can put a pin in this, but like that's that's the most important thing I wanted your listeners to get the the context of the 19th century, yeah, what was going on in 1948. That's I, I think that that's a the perfect kind of background for understanding what what's taking place right now. You know that that's yeah good good historical context. Um, so I, I think maybe maybe one direction to move into this though is. Why is this history so obfuscated oftentimes? You know, I, I think, you know, I, I've been reading, um, I'm blanking on the author's names, but except for Palestine, the the limits of progressive Except politics. for Palestine. Yeah. Great book. Great book. And so I, I guess the question I, I'm going to ask is why is it except for Palestine? What, what, what exactly is it about Israel-Palestine that makes this a, a situation that we, we all default to? Well, it's complicated. It's, it's, you know. Why Why is that? There's a political scientist whose name is Samuel Huntington. Mm-hmm. And if if your listeners don't know who he is, he is uh, he was, I should say, a very important man who wrote a book called The Clash of Civilization. Mm-hmm. And it argued that in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union, there are fundamental civilizational discrepancies between China, East Asia, and the Islamic world, mm-hmm. that ultimately these civilizational differences will become a stumbling block for the process of global capitalist accumulation. Mm-hmm. He's wrong because Islam is not something that should be interpreted in civilizational terms, that there is no West that is in conflict with a Muslim world. There is no Muslim world. There is no Christian world, right? I think this fundamental approach to geopolitics that emphasizes civilizational differences is ultimately orientalist uh the the term that edward said developed and racist it's not based on fact or evidence it's based on sentiments and observations Mm -hmm. that don't have bases in empirical reality Mm -hmm. uh because of this clash of civilizations hypothesis, we say stock freezes, uh, claims that we say over and over again, we repeat over and over again, but have no basis in reality. For example, uh, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. <laughs> uh, what kind of democracy treats the majority of its population as second class citizens? Yes, it's not, uh, a, it's not a democracy. <laughs> right. I would compare contemporary Israel to living in post-Reconstruction America. Mm -hmm. And this is a radical claim that will upset many people. But what I'm saying is that to be a Palestinian Christian living in the territory of Israel, to be a Palestinian Arab Muslim living in the territory of Israel, is to live a life of a legally second-class citizen. Mm -hmm. You will be spat on walking across the street Mm -hmm. and the the egregious racism that is experienced by the arab population in israel is something that's not highlighted often enough um so yeah the the we don't talk about this issue very much because of this clash of civilizations hypothesis that frames the palestinian arabs as a as a defective pathologized population that 
is a is a is a kind of vestigial uh, manifestation of right wing. Uh, uh, you know, people even in France say Islamo gauchism. It's left wing Islam, right? It's like it's a mm-hmm. it's a crazy constellation of ideas that is ultimately reactionary, regressive, not evolved enough, not enlightened enough. And the the narrative is that they they deserve what's coming to them. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that unfold right now. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. It, it, you know, uh, there's, you know, I, I'm kind of glad you brought up the the clash of civilization thesis because I I felt really since since October seventh that I I feel like I am living through the early days of the the war on terror again, um, which I know a lot of people have have made this observation, but it, it's you know, and it, it's it really is the revitalization of that. Um, you know that that uh that that clash of clash of civilizations thesis kind of coming back up to fill the gap after the fall of the Soviet Union. You know, history ended or whatever. We need some new history. I mean, well, what what is it then? You know, West versus East. And so, yeah, it feels like those all these old tropes have just been getting, you know, uh, dug back up. Well, um, you know, I, I moving forward here, I, I guess the, you, you threw you, you know you you mentioned this being a, a settler colonial project. You know, I, 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 I agree with that. I obviously though, that's become a contentious thing even recently to, to identify Israel as, as settler colonial. What, what would you be, you know, kind of your, your case for using that specific, you know, descriptor to, to kind of describe what, what's going on. Um, I mean, obviously some of that history we've already discussed here, but, um, you know, uh, as, as people will try to point to, well, there were, there were Jews in Palestine as well prior to, you know, even the migrations um, from Zionists, you know, migrations. So like th- th- they'll try to kind of be like, well, this isn't a settler situation. What what definitively makes you you confident calling this a settler colonial situation? A lot of it has to do with the scholarship that's come out in the past 20, 30 years about settler colonialism as an analytic framework or heuristic. Patrick mm-hmm. Wolf would be the person I appeal to over and over again. And it's that what's going on in Palestine is is simply a question of land appropriation and dispossession. Mm-hmm. That when when during the first and second Eliot in the 19th century, uh, Jewish settlers came to Palestine, a lot of them were under the impression that the land was uninhabited. Mm. This is okay. not... Yeah. This is not this is not true for the third and fourth Eliot, but for the first and second, the reason why this was true was because they didn't realize that Palestinian nomads on the land did not have permanent settlements, that they mm. moved from place to place. This created the conditions where uh, uh, people were able to practice sedentary agriculture mm-hmm. uh, and displace the Palestinian uh, land. Mm-hmm. So the, in, the, the inter- interface between uh, sedentary peoples and nomadic peoples was a huge bone of contention. Um, obviously, this is no longer a, a reality that people are facing because everybody is sedentary. But, but this is crucially important to understand how it was that people who had experienced profound persecution and destruction at the hands of white Europeans uh, 
felt comfortable settling in the land. Revisionist Zionism comes about in the towards the end of the first quarter of the 20th century. And this revisionist Zionism is more willing to use violence and force to accomplish its political endeavors and aim. So like I said earlier, thinking about Zionism as a diverse and variegated movement is crucial here. Mm -hmm. But what we have to be honest about is that the current administration in Israel, the ruled by the Likud party, is theoretically inspired by revisionist Zionism, mm. a, a kind of violent settler colonial Zionism that does not believe Palestinians have a religiously, ethically, historically legitimate claim to the land. Um, you know, an, another phrase, you know, on top of settler colonial that gets thrown around a lot with, in regard to this is, is apartheid. Um, would you want to speak to that? That what do you? To what degree do you think that's an appropriate phrase to refer to what's going on in Israel-Palestine? Um, obviously, that conjures in most people's heads, in, you know, images of South Africa. Um, are there any parallels that seem worth bringing up to, between those two situations? Or? Absolutely, I would say that uh, Iam Pape has written a brilliant book comparing the situation in South Africa in the eighties. Uh, with uh, the situation in Israel-Palestine. Now, the, the danger with any comparison is that any com any comparison is fundamentally inaccurate. Right, right. Why is that the case? Comparisons are fundamentally inaccurate because we're comparing two discrete events. And when you compare two discrete events, fundamental features like geography, populations, demographics, historical contingency, they don't map onto each other. What we instead talk about are structural homologies, structural analogies that allow us to see common threads, common themes between two discrete situations. The, the situation in South Africa was ultimately one of settler colonialism, a white supremacist settler colonialism that gradually displaced the indigenous population through both traditional colonialism and through economic neocolonialism. And this is something that we see very clearly in Israel-Palestine. We also see similar political and diplomatic trends. We see the Reagan administration in the 80s aggressively supporting the, uh, uh, the South African government mm -hmm. and funding it, uh, giving lip service to the political goals of South Africa. And we see similarly today in both the Trump, uh, also the Obama and the Biden administrations giving unqualified uh, you know, support to Israel, regardless of the war crimes and genocide it, it perpetuates. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, is there like a, a legal basis, especially for referring to uh, Israel as it currently exists as, you know, a, a case of apartheid? Like what, what's what's the legal structures that are kind of enforcing, you know, th this racial hierarchy? That's a great question. You know, the, the question of genocide is legally defined. Mm -hmm. Apartheid is a little bit more nebulous and ambiguous, right? Right, right. The question is, the question is having a having territory land that is uh, structurally segregated, 
one example of something that is not an example of apartheid proper, but an example of something that can contribute to an ethos or an atmosphere of apartheid is the idea of separate but equal. Yeah. Okay. So for example, like there are two drinking fountains in front of me. One says whites, the other says colored, Mm -hmm. right? The best analogy I can think of for what we could understand as political apartheid is what's going on in Bahrain right now, where you have a majority Shia population that is ruled by a Sunni uh, establishment. And in, in, in Bahrain, Shia, Shia Muslims cannot serve in diplomatic positions or serve in the military. So this is a, a kind of sectarian apartheid. Yeah. In Israel, it's, it's literally a land-based segregation where mm-hmm. people in the west bank and in the gaza strip are are policed the situation in gaza is what uh eon pape refers to as the biggest prison on earth we have mm-hmm. millions of people who have their caloric intake monitored they have their electricity consumption regulated they have their water supplies regulated mm-hmm. and this is this is simply for me as a historian it's it, it's heartbreaking to see mm-hmm. to see a state exacting so much power to punish and discipline a population that has done nothing but exist mm-hmm. now people are going to get very upset with this analysis because they're going to say the events of october 7th prove that hamas is a terrorist organization that desires nothing but the annihilation of Israel. If you would have heard any of this podcast episode, at the very least, I want to show you that the issue is complicated, but it's not complicated for the reasons that Zionists say it's complicated. It's not ethically ambiguous by any means. It is a case of David and Goliath ironically having the roles reversed. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is Israel as Goliath, and the Palestinian people as David. And it's complicated in the sense that you have to read a few books to understand what's going on historically. That's why it's complicated. Like it's not it's not it's not a it's not a transparent issue, right? You have to understand why it is that there are white European Ashkenazi Jews in Arab Palestine. But there are Sephardim and and other Jewish people who occupy the land or inhabit the land. But the question is, how do we make sense out of out of this whole thing? And feel free to rewind the episode and start from the beginning, right? But hmm. the question is, with with the stakes of what's going on now, what is at stake when we say this issue is complicated or it, it's hard to understand? It's not ethically hard to understand. Yeah. Right? Okay. Hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 not complicated on a moral level. It can be complicated on a historic level. I, I that's I think that's uh, yeah. I had this exact um, on the Patreon episode. I kept doing the same thing where I kept kind of saying it's not complicated. Well, it's kind of complicated, but it's not complicated. That's the distinction that I think I, I needed there. Well, you you mentioned Hamas here. I, I think that might it might be worthwhile kind of zooming in on Hamas specifically because that's where so much of the conversation is happening right now. You know what? what is what is Hamas you know I you know what what is it and you know as as many people on the left will say you cannot equate 
Palestinians broadly with Hamas. Um, you know, why, why is that distinction so important? And, you know, maybe a little bit of background of why is Hamas even in charge of Gaza? You know what I mean? Um, how, how did this happen? We have to look at what happened. So you start in 48 with the Arab-Israeli war. Then we go to the Suez crisis in 1956. Then we go to the 67 Six-Day War, where uh, Israel uh, got control of Sinai, the West Bank, Gaza, and the Golan Heights. This added more than 1 million Palestinians to Israel's territory. In 73, we have the Yom Kippur War. 78, Israel invades Lebanon because the PLO relocated to Lebanon from Jordan after the civil war there. Devastating war in 78. They invaded Lebanon again in 82 in clashes with the PLO. Israel occupied the southern Lebanon border for almost two decades. Mm -hmm. In 87, we have the Intifada, what scholars call the greatest intelligence intelligence failure of Israel since the 73 war. Protests breaking out all over the West Bank and Gaza that develop into a sustained uprising that lasts for several years. And this intifada, uh, the Arabic word for uprising, uh, prom- uh, promotes a U.S. and, interestingly enough, a Norwegian mediation that leads to the 1993 Oslo Accord. Mm-hmm. between Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Fast forward to six, uh, to 96, another war with Lebanon. 2000, we have the second intifada. And in the second intifada, we have the famous photographs of people using, uh, Palestinians using slingshots to throw rocks at Israeli tanks, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very literal David and Goliath imagery there. Exactly. In September of 2000, uh, uh, Ariel Daron goes to the Temple Mount, which is the site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which causes Palestinians to protest, which leads to the Second Intifada. So Palestinian militant groups create uh, a, a sustained campaign of suicide bombings, and the uh, uh, Israeli military and the IDF cracks down on Palestine. This is where Hamas comes in the scene in 2005. Israel withdraws from Gaza in 2005, and Hamas allegedly wins elections, right? That that uh, spark mm-hmm. a civil war in Gaza between Islamists like Hamas and the Fatah party, which ended in 2007 with Hamas taking over Gaza. There's another war with Lebanon in 2006, which I'm not going to go into, but there's a war in Gaza in 2008 it lasted for three weeks. It killed a thousand Palestinian people and maybe ten Israelis. There's another war in 2014 between Israel and Gaza. You see the cycle, right? Mm-hmm. Two thousand Palestinians died in 2014 and killed a few dozen Israelis in 2021, 2022. The the violence accelerates again. And we're in the midst of another conflict between Gaza and Israel. This is the cycle. It's, it's cyclical violence. Mm-hmm. And Hamas is a militant Islamist organization that, according to Rashid Khalidi, according to Noam Chomsky, Ian Pape, James Gelvin, is 
You know, there's a saying that comes from the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, which is that every explosion of fascist violence is the result of a failed revolutionary potential. And I think that the emergence of secular Arab nationalism in the 20th century and its subsequent failure created the space for fundamentalist Islamism Mm -hmm. to take control over the ideoscapes of segments of the Arab and Muslim world. And the question ultimately becomes about legitimacy. I don't have the, the, there's no Pew poll forums operating in Gaza right now that are polling people about, you know, to what extent do you think Hamas is a legitimate representative of your perspective? We can't do that right now, right? So I can't tell you to what extent Hamas legitimately represents the goals of people in Gaza. All I can tell you is that, number one, and again, this might be very controversial, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Number two, Hamas has done and committed war crimes and atrocities against innocent civilians. Yes. Mm-hmm. Number three, Israel's response in Gaza is so radically disproportionate that it brings to mind stuff like the Dresden firebombing, which Kurt Vonnegut so beautifully described in Slaughterhouse Five, right? Mm-hmm. You can't just firebomb a city because you're in a military conflict. You can't just drop nuclear bombs on people because you're in a war with them. Right. And so the question is, looking at a current milieu where Zionists are basically radical right-wing populist authoritarians who subscribe to a messianic eschatology, that views mm. the state of Israel as the embodiment of the Jewish Messiah. How are you going to navigate this conversation, right? The What experts across the left have said is that what was going on since the Israeli withdrawal from Gaza in 2005 is a conflict between two varieties of settler colonialism. One is a liberal, secular settler colonialism represented by people in Tel Aviv mm-hmm. who, who want to simply ignore the Palestinian crisis, right? The other are right-wing nationalist Zionists who fundamentally believe in the religious vocation of the state of Israel mm-hmm. and the imperative of the state of Israel from the river to the sea to to own and occupy and cultivate the land. This conflict was escalating in Israeli popular parliamentary discourse between secular Zionists and religious Zionists. Mm -hmm. That conflict is gone now because of what happened in October 7th, right? The the debate between liberals and religious right-wing authoritarians has dissolved in the wake of what is obviously a, a, a radical and pressing security crisis. Mm-hmm. So strategically, Hamas made a set of decisions that, depending on your perspective, either completely fucked up the process of internal Israeli negotiation with the Palestinian problem, or brought newfound international attention to the crisis. Mm. And 
-hmm. The discourse going on is what costs are you willing to incur to bring international attention to a crisis? And myself included, along with many ethicists and moralists, say that what Hamas did on October 7th was not worth any kind of, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. attention to the issue. Absolutely. Right. Um, I, I think that that's a, that's a good, good answer here. Um, you know, especially just kind of, kind of helping us, uh, understand how, why Hamas is in the situation it's in. Um, now I, this is something I, I hear a lot, you know, with my kind of, unfortunately, social media informed understanding of the conflict. And so I'd obviously want to run it past you is, you know, I've heard a lot of talk about the role of Israel in propping up Hamas. Is that just kind of a conspiracy theory type thing? Or is that a genuine historical, you know, backing to that claim? To be quite honest with you, I haven't done extensive reading about the situation in 2005. All I can tell you is that a civil war broke out in 2005 between the losing Fatah party and mm. Hamas, right? That, it, 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 you know, the PLO and the existing organizational structure in Gaza fell apart in 2005. Mm-hmm. And were the elections in 2005 legitimate? I don't know. Okay. H- Hamas is, a, is an Islamist organization. And I think we have to ask the question, what is the left supposed to do with with radical Islamic fundamentalism? And I don't have good answers to that I don't question. either. Yeah. I mean, this is the, this is the, I remember the same argument, having the same argument quite a bit after um, the U.S.'s uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, where I, I you know, you say, I, or at least I, I said, you know, that it's a good thing this is taking place. But then also people are quick to say, well, then are you defending the, the rule of the Taliban in Afghanistan? Which, which of course not, but obviously the the end of the intervention was necessary. So I, I under I feel like this is a reoccurring problem with the left is that they're just they're they're yeah you know, especially when talking about regions that have these like strong fundamentalist Islamic sects where what, what do we do when that is seemingly the only freedom fighters left? You know when when leftist groups in in these various nations get crushed so much that. You know, it, it really is a choice between you know fundamentalism and uh, I. <laughs> I don't know. There isn't a good answer to that. I don't think. Yeah. Well, so you know, discussing this, you know, I, un, you know, Hamas is in charge of you know is you know in charge of Gaza, as the the West Bank is kind of you know this other situation that i you know we'll see what eventually might come of that but what's kind of maybe the differences of conditions between gaza and the west bank the west bank is not an open air prison Mm -hmm. the amount of patrolling and state disciplinary apparatus in the west bank is not as severe as in gaza not to say that living in the west bank is a is a cakewalk or a stroll through the champs Elysees, but Mm -hmm. The situation in Gaza is uniquely atrocious. Um, the numbers from the health authority in Gaza say that 10,000 people have died. My conviction and my cynical pessimistic conviction is that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, there's going to be a panel of predominantly white scholars sitting in a Hyatt or Hilton Convention Center in New York talking about the 
talking about the tragedy of the Israeli genocide of Palestine in the past tense. Think of it like this. How do we talk about indigenous people in the United States? In the past tense, despite them but very still, much being they're alive. They're still fucking in there. here. Mm-hmm. They're here. They're suffering from incredibly high rates of, of uh, self-harm, high rates of diabetes, high rates of cancer, high rates of sexual assault, high rates of not having those sexual assaults committed by white people actually prosecuted by police uh, because of the ridiculous structures of governmentality that they're having to go through. It's, it's living hell mm-hmm. in these reservations for people. And I'm not saying you can draw a direct analogy. I'm saying that there are homologies, structural similarities between the experience of indigenous people in the United States, the experience of formerly enslaved Africans and their descendants in the United States and the people of Palestine, Mm -hmm. that these networks of solidarity create opportunities to interpret history through through the lens of solidarity. And ultimately, this narrative of speaking about indigenous Americans in the past tense is a psychological rationalization to avoid Mm -hmm. dealing with the trauma of coming to terms with the fact that for many people in this country, their ancestors were genocidal maniacs. And in Israel today, the same dynamic, I argue, is at play. That people who didn't necessarily have any role in the dispossession, annihilation, ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people have to come to terms with a similar dynamic. The problem is, in the same way that there are still indigenous Americans, many of them actually, they're a percentage of our country in the United States, there are still very much Palestinians alive. The issue that we're dealing with is that the IDF, the public relations arm of Israel, and many other things are going to use every opportunity to reduce the threat that the existing Palestinian population place, whether that means forced displacement, ethnic cleansing, or an actual genocide remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. But my cynical, pessimistic prediction is that 10, 20, 30 years from now, we're going to be living in a very different situation where, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, we're going to be using the past tense, even if it's not called for. Oh, God, I hope it's not true, but it is. I am... Yeah, in a similar cynical headspace over the last last month. Moving a little bit to you know, kind of this discussion of of um, Hamas and you know, then the the rise of a you know this this you know not not that Zionism wasn't far right before you know before now, but this especially like the liberal wing kind of losing out. Um, obviously, I, I think both you and I would be. Push it, we would push back on someone who tries to frame this this conflict as a religious conflict. Um, but you know, on the on the other hand, there is a degree to which this has taken on religious forms, especially since you know since Fatah lo- you know lost in two thousand five uh, to Hamas. So, like, what what role does kind of a religious analysis of this play? And uh, is it is it worth time to look at things in religious terms at all? My uh, advisor at the University of Michigan, Joshua Cole, came out with a book. Uh, the book is called Lethal Provocation, The Constantine Murders and the Politics of French Algeria, right? And the question is about 
European provocation in a colonial context. Mm -hmm. So uh, Julia Clancy Smith has a beautiful book called Mediterraneans, which also talks about this theme of uh, Usama Makdizi with another brilliant book called The Age of Coexistence. The idea is the idea is that Jews and Muslims have existed in peaceful coexist, largely peaceful coexistence since the advent of Islam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. People of the book. Exactly. It's not until European colonialism where we have cases of provocation that stir up animosity between these populations mm-hmm. where we see the crises developing. And in the case of, of uh, Zionist settler colonialism, I think what we have to remember and keep in mind is how would you feel if you were kicked out of your homeland? Mm-hmm. What cycles of violence are going to be born and perpetuate mm-hmm. themselves in the midst of a conflict like this that arises with the development of nationalism in the 19th century? When you ask, is it a religious conflict? My ultimate impetus is to, is to say, no, it's a settler colonial conflict. Mm-hmm. That however, however much people want to frame this as a clash of civilizations thing between secular developed intellectually superior Jews versus backward militant Islamic depraved Palestinians. This is simply factually incorrect mm-hmm. that religion at, at most plays a auxiliary role to the dynamic of settler colonialism in question. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Moving a little bit of a different direction here, how, you know, a, a lot of the discourse going on right now is is having a, a strong emphasis on anti-Semitism, um, mm. you know, and, and accusations of that being thrown around. Um, how, how seriously do we take accusations of anti-Semitism in regard to this conflict and how, uh, how much do, 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 how much does anti-Semitism play a role in this conflict? That's an excellent question. If you read the works of decolonial scholars like uh, Annabelle Tejano and Walter Mignolo, you'll see that there's an argument that might not be very familiar to your listeners, which is racism is not a eternal problematic of human society. Mm-hmm. Racism has a historical provenance. Mm-hmm. It arises in the 16th century in the Iberian Peninsula when mm. Jewish people were forcibly kicked out of Iberia uh, or they had to forcibly convert to Catholicism. Muslims were also forced to convert to Catholicism as well. This is the infamous conversos and moriscos, right? That... Um, they they were even even when both Jews and Muslims converted to Catholicism, they were still viewed with suspicion because at this time a very important concept was developed. It's called limpieza de sangre, cleanliness of blood, mm-hmm. and the idea is that people who were cultivated as Jews or as Muslims didn't have clean blood. So racism as we understand it today, was born discursively in Iberia in the 16th century. So 
If we know that concepts that we intuitively feel are eternal or perpetual actually have a historical provenance, then we can understand that it's possible to change anything with enough hard work. Anti-Semitism is the corollary or the obverse side of anti-blackness. The color line between white and black is the underlying script through the sit the 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 grates, if you will, the sandbox of cleanliness of blood that then filters in the Jewish exception. So in the in the discursive framework of the cleanliness of blood, anti-blackness and anti-Semitism work together to create the conditions through which whiteness can be articulated. Mm-hmm. So whiteness is a fundamentally oppositional discursive strategy. It is it is not it is not primarily ethnic, it is not primarily religious. It is an oppositional pseudo-ethnicized discursive constellation that that defines itself as not Jewish and not black. Mm-hmm. And there have been many modifications to the scope and expanse of whiteness since Iberia, uh, you know, the, the case of Limpieza de Sangre. But what remains consistent is anti-Semitism and anti-Blackness. And we cannot understand the discursive frame without relating those two themes together. What is anti-Semitism? In the history of Europe, there are two kinds of anti-Semitism. There is religious anti-Semitism, which is what would be represented by people like uh, Martin Luther, who wrote uh, the very infamous pamphlet on the Jews and their lies, right? Which argued that the Jews were arrogant and self-possessed because they did not recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Keep in mind, when Luther had written that pamphlet, he was already losing his mind. I mean, he was eating his own feces on the advice of, of <laughs> his physician, right? Right. Not to excuse it by any means, but like, you know, he, he, was, he was on the verge of madness in this period of his life. And that's different from what Hitler and the Nazis were doing. Mm, which was ethnic. It's a kind of, yeah. it's a racial, it's a racialized anti-Semitism. Right, right. Racialized anti-Semitism is something that you cannot fix. There is something biologically essential about your identity as a black person, as a Jewish person, that is not fixable. You cannot assimilate into anything. You are always already an exception. Mm-hmm. So the question then becomes, if, if all of that is said, what, what does anti-Semitism play a role in this conflict? The first thing we have to get right, the state of Israel, founded in 1948, has absolutely nothing to do with anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. It is a ethnostate, a Jewish ethnostate, founded in the 20th century, much like Pakistan, a Muslim ethnostate, both of which I find legislatively, judiciously, uh, judicially, executively questionable. As a leftist, I don't believe ethnostates should exist. Anti-Semitism is discrimination, hostility, enmity towards Jewish people. It is not by any stretch of the imagination. And this is, this, let me clarify, uh, I am a Iranian man, a, mm. a someone who identifies as a Christian. I am not speaking from my own authority. This is from Jewish 
scholars, even Israeli scholars, Norman mm. Finkelstein, Ion Pape, Noam Chomsky, a variety of other scholars who identify as Jewish, who have clearly said this, that criticism of a state has nothing to do with discrimination against the people. <laughs> and I think once we, once we realize that in both the United States and the European Union, the, the power of certain discourse coalitions to equate criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism is very dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's not dangerous simply because I disagree with it politically. It's dangerous because once we say that criticism of a state is the same thing as criticism of, a, of, of an ethnicity mm -hmm. or religion, we're saying that the state becomes a representative of an entire people group. Mm -hmm. And that is something we want to avoid. We want to yeah. avoid equating the disciplinary state apparatus with cultural identity. Yeah, absolutely. Last couple questions here, um, and we could probably move toward wrapping up here. Um, is maybe looking a little more toward um, the future or the present and the future here. Um, so, first off, is you know another another thing floating around within the discourse right now is you know obviously the demand for ceasefire, and then the more. Um, cagey uh softened language we see of a humanitarian pause being talked about in, in congress and whatever D do you think this language matters um the difference between a ceasefire and a humanitarian pause when discussing what's going on in gaza absolutely i think uh like a ceasefire is a radical call for the elite political establishment in israel to wake up and develop a conscience mm -hmm. that much in the same way that in the United States, there are committed people running for elected office, being political influencers, sharing their outrage on social media, writing to their Congress people who argue for the principle of land back for indigenous communities to exercise their sovereignty in local areas. It's not a pipe dream. It's already happening in Ohio and other states mm -hmm. where groups of indigenous people are actively acquiring sovereignty over stretches of land. It's not, mm -hmm. an, it's not a pipe dream. It's, it's happening already in the United States. Much in the same way, people in Israel, I know them, left-wing, anti-Zionist Jewish people and secular Jews, actively communicating with the leadership of, of their country to their own bodily harm and peril, mm -hmm. saying what we need now is an unqualified, unconditional ceasefire to allow the shambles, the wreck of Gaza to recover from this unceasing genocidal bombardment. And I think the, the kind of liberal language of a humanitarian pause is an, optic, an optical concession to the Biden administration to avoid the most egregious accusations of complete and total total war. Mm -hmm. It's 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 definitely trying to to worm out of like actually demanding what seems to be needed to demand. Well, um, you mentioned uh, land back, um, and so uh, that actually kind of uh, ties nicely to one of the other questions I still have here, which was um, what what exactly does like right to return look like? That's become a big big 
aspect of of Palestinian uh, solidarity movements is is the idea of the the right to return, you know, to to yeah, um, what freedom of movement, etc. What what do you think if that were to be implemented, it would it would look like? How, how would how would that process go down? I have no idea. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. I think we're living in a clusterfuck of a situation. Mm-hmm. We're living we're living in a context where so UN resolution 3236 passed in 1974 says that the right to return is an inalienable right. Mm-hmm. How do you handle this in the Palestinian situation? What are we going to do with people living in Israel who not even the settler population, the people living in the land of Israel who are second, third generation living on land that Palestinians used to occupy. Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer to that question. I think people, p- political scientists can be too optimistic about the prospects for peace. There's a brilliant verse in the book of Jeremiah, which is, you know, uh, they're, they're saying to my daughter, Zion, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the fundamental difficulty that policy wonks, politicos, political scientists are struggling with is that they don't realize the scope of the problem, mm-hmm. which is there are millions of displaced people living in the second and third generation abroad, who according to the UN General Assembly, have a inalienable right to return. But mm-hmm. how can they return when their land is occupied? So that's the question, right? I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. All I can say is that it's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. It it is I mean, this is the legacy of the Nakba, right? This is the legacy of seeing settler colonial genocide and ethnic cleansing in motion. Mm-hmm. And circling back to a comment I made before, I think it's important for us to show solidarity with Palestinian people. It's important for us to show solidarity with uh, with Israelis who oppose the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. It's important for us to argue for ceasefire and for uh, a peaceable resolution to this conflict that involves feedback and mediation from both legitimate representatives of Israel and the Palestinian people. To get to such a moment, we need to know who the legitimate representative of people in Gaza are. We have to know uh, what a potential path forward could look like. Mm -hmm. And all I can say is that we need our best minds, our best theorists, our best planners on this question. Mm -hmm. Those people are not looking at this question right now. Instead, we have incompetent people we have policy wonks who think through a grid of american geostrategic priorities who are not on the ground seeing the deaths of israeli citizens and israeli children palestinian citizens and palestinian children ultimately what i think needs to happen is something very similar to the peace and reconciliation committee that happened in africa south africa in the wake of apartheid Absolutely. And the only way that can happen is when radical systemic injustices are radically addressed. And what that would look like 
whether it means a reparceling out of the land, a strategic re- redistricting of Jerusalem, moving embassies, uh, reconfiguring policing and resource distribution. A lot of these things will have to be discussed in a in a in a, in a legitimate Palestinian state. And like I said before, it's simply a clusterfuck. You can't call the West Bank and the Gaza Strip a Palestinian state today. Right. Right. It, it, you know, it, it, it always gets really tricky when talking about one and two state solutions or something like that right now, when it, it feels like that's far from something that could happen um, anytime soon. It, it feels like, yeah, the, 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 the conversation of policy wonks, not... Um, yeah, not a reality. Um, do you uh, do you see any likelihood of um, I don't know the the kind of undying support of Israel feels at least you know among public sentiment. It, it seems like it's it's getting eroded a little bit more than it it had in the past. Do do you see the likelihood of something like? You know, uh, you know, the ICC being involved in, uh, you know, going after, you know, anyone who who is involved in this or anything. Or, or do you do you really think that this will be, you know, not not a lot of change will happen from Western governments here? I remain cynical and skeptical about the posture of Western governments. I mean, if you go to Financial Times, there was a brilliant article looking at uh the European Union releasing a report on Wednesday of this week. So that would be what? Uh, November 8th, Wednesday. The European Union released a, uh, European Commission, I'm sorry, released a report on the status of Turkey uh, acceding to the European Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and the commission report was incredibly critical of uh, President uh, or Prime Minister Erdogan's uh, uh condemnation of israel mm-hmm. uh he also Erdo- erdogan also called hamas a liberation organization so uh the european union was very critical of erdogan's claims yeah and um so we're living in a very complicated geostrategic question where you know iran mm-hmm. and its funding of hamas and hezbollah plays a large role here Turkey. And and then we have to ask the question: What are the Gulf states going to do? Yeah. I what mean. is Egypt going to do? Right. And so, one one final piece of advice that I that I want to give to your listeners is: Don't jump to judgment right away. Mm-hmm. We need to wait. We need to wait to see what happens in this conflict. Mm-hmm. And I think my honest opinion is that the most ethical thing to do at this time is to write your Congress people and tell them to advocate for a ceasefire mm-hmm. well, i understand that so many people are cynical about bourgeois electoral democracy but you have to do something right mm-hmm. go to a march go to a protest express yourself share your voice on social media talk to your relatives um and and josiah one thing i wanted to ask you is that another point in time in the future i would love to have an episode with you about why it is that Americans support Israel so much. I would love to have, yeah, to have you come back on and talk about that. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I don't have a good answer for why Americans support Israel so much, but I think it's a, it's a really interesting question for sure. The, 
the the long and short of it in, in, in less than a sentence, it has to do with people like John Nelson Darby and C.I. Schofield in the 19th mm. century. Who oh, it's, it's pre-millennial. Pre- mm-hmm. Okay. Pre-millennial yeah. dispensationalism, dispensationalism. Yeah. which which comes from the British uh, Israelite movement in the 19th century. Hmm. People who began to read the Book of Revelation literally. Um, so that's where a lot of the intellectual and religious genealogy comes from. Yeah, actually, that would be really interesting to have you back on to talk about. Maybe maybe next few months I'll, I'll ask you back on. Because, yeah, you would have that theological side of it, too. That would be really interesting. So, Well, um, the final question I had, you've kind of already addressed, but I guess we'll just say it specifically, is, is what can we do? right now like what you know the kind of person listening to this is you know going to be probably just a young adult of some sort like in the u.s um or maybe the uk like what what can they do and i i think you you've had a pretty good answer here with just at you know at the very least you know going to protests going to anything you see around you that you can attend and then calling writing your representatives you know demanding demanding uh the u.s you know, uh, demanding a ceasefire. Yeah. I also, I also think, you know, this might be my, my romantic Edward Said style humanism, right? I, I am a humanist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really do believe that by educating ourselves, arming ourselves with knowledge, mm-hmm. we're able to fight back against misinformation, disinformation and conspiracy. And, I don't know if you can include a list of books and articles in the show notes, but I will send you a list of books, foremost among them, James Gelvin's Israel-Palestine Conflict, Ian Pape's The Biggest Prison on Earth, uh, Mohammed Omer's Shell-Shocked on the Ground Under Israel's Gaza Assault, and finally, Rashid Khalidi's excellent book, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. I think these, these are... These are foundational texts, accessible, easy to read texts that help people develop a more comprehensive picture of the situation on the ground. Um, and uh, yeah, and I would also throw except for Palestine in there as well as a not for the historical background as much, but more addressing a lot of the common talking points that you hear when whenever Israel comes up and. You know, it's it's a pretty short little little read, and um, you know, it's written in 2020, so it, it's pretty you know pretty recent. It's it's only missing the you know the last few years. So, um, all right. Well, uh, is there anything you want to plug or anything before you before we uh, wrap up here? Um, yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, I I have a podcast called Explain Things to Me, mm-hmm. which you can find wherever podcasts are available. Uh, I will be starting the second season sometime soon with my friend Dwight uh, about uh, the histories of liberal Protestantism in the United States. Um, And yeah, hope you'll listen to that at some point. Yeah, absolutely. It's awesome. Well, um, thank you so much for joining Keanu. It is, it is always a pleasure. You always have a lot of insight to give. Um, Appreciate that, Josiah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Fruitless, a podcast brought to you by our lovely patrons who include Chris Barker, Leo Zachary Dickinson, James R., Thomas C., Kyle Gannis, Moss, The Worst of All Possible Worlds, Elizabeth Power, Stephen Atkinson, and Gavin Aronson. If you like what you heard today, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and 
leave it a, a nice review on Apple Podcasts to help it out with the algorithms. Uh, if you really like the podcast, you could check out Fruitless on Patreon. Link for that is in the show notes. Um, it's $3 a month for all sorts of fun bonus content. And with that, have a wonderful rest of your day. And I uh, should see you here in the next week or two with uh, more, more Fruitless.